0: Yeah, I remember it really well. I was in my office um, that afternoon. I got a call from our chief satellite officer, a guy named Joe Pizza who was since retired, but Joe had been involved, heavily involved in our system through that time. And he called me and he said, "Hey, Matt, um, I got some interesting news. I got some, um, I got some bad news and some worse news. <laughs> Which do you want first?"
1: From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. That was Matt Desch. CEO of Iridium Communications, Inc., describing the moment when he learned that one of his company's satellites had been hit by a piece of junk. It was actually a 900-kilogram Hulk, a dead and defunct Russian military satellite. I've been wanting to do this week's story for some time, years actually, and now is a good time when many who serve the defense policymaking ecosystem here, as well as within multinational organizations, are coming to better appreciate the fragile, or dare I say finite, nature of the near-Earth space environment. We know, at least academically, that the United States and the West depend on satellites to project power well over the horizon. And we know that Each of the Department of Homeland Security's 16 critical infrastructure sectors has a dependency on space-based assets. That's why Russia last month blew up one of its satellites with a missile. It created 1,500 pieces of trackable debris. It was President Vladimir Putin's crude warning to the West to stay out of Russia's way in the Ukraine. Putting the ins and outs of the Ukraine crisis to the side, that ASAT test increased the amount of trackable debris and junk to at least 38,000, yet the danger feels somewhat abstract because we can't just look up and see it, but it's anything but theoretical to Matt. Before we hear from him, his company has a tale that includes revolutionizing communications to and from the back of beyond, bankruptcy, and a complete 180 turnaround to now, when this year Iridium is buying back some $300 million in its shares. And before you think Iridium doesn't have anything to do with defense, think again. Just this year, Iridium Inc two contracts worth just shy of $770 million with the Department of Defense to provide a global communications system and to develop a satellite payload for the U.S. Army to support navigation in environments where warfighters are denied access to the global positioning system. In fact, it was the Department of Defense that threw the company its life ring during the bankruptcy in late 2000. But enough about business. This is Matt, the story, and his experienced view on what policymakers, leaders, and space operators should do to preserve our freedom of action in low-Earth orbit. Hello, Matt. Thank you for joining me.
0: Great to be here, Laura. Thanks for inviting me.
1: You know, as the CEO of Iridium Communications, Inc., You're very well known in the space and in the communications and in the defense industries, but we have listeners that are either a bit young or new to these sectors. Could you introduce yourself and your company for the uninitiated, you know, where Iridium has come from and well where it's going?
0: Well, um, I've been the CEO for 15 years, which is almost half the life of sort of the idea and the company. Iridium was conceived by Motorola which was a powerhouse in the early telecommunications industry, particularly in the development of wireless cellular phones. And back in the late 80s, someone had the idea of putting satellites in low Earth orbit, which had never been done before. Today, that seems to be quite common. But in in that time, only spy satellites from... Our government or other governments were really operated in low Earth orbit. Most satellites were out at geostationary orbit, well out above the equator. And in the late 80s, early 90s, a couple engineers in Arizona had this idea. It was an audacious idea at the time to launch, actually at that time, 77 satellites into low Earth orbit. About low Earth orbit, say, in our case, is about 500 U.S. miles or 780 kilometers international miles, I guess you could say, above the earth and uh, where each satellite goes around the planet about every 100 minutes, you know, making a complete orbit, each of those would be six planes of seven satellites. That's why they called the company Iridium. It was like the electron with 77 uh, electrons was Iridium and it's a cool name. Unfortunately, they downsized the network a little because they didn't need that many satellites to 66 satellites, which fortunately is the element dysprosium, which isn't a good name for a company. So we we kept it at Iridium. Uh, It was an audacious idea in the 90s. It started the space race, if you will. Lots of companies tried to get up there to, to build satellites for low Earth orbit or even other orbits. And of course, it was a little bit ahead of its time in the 90s and went public and shortly afterwards just couldn't meet its debt obligations we emerged as a company with a brand new network no business in about 2000 so almost 21 years ago now so i joined oh you know in 2006 about 6 7 years after we had kind of gotten started and we were already growing quite well but we really knew that eventually we need to replace the network in space with a whole new network that was challenging because we were still quite small we did a lot of business with many but i wasn't too worried about that because this network is so unique all the satellites are interconnected in space and we were becoming very important for connecting not just people with satellite phones but things you know tracking trucks and and um, and assets and uh, equipment and people and people on ships were using our system to call from remote places or airplanes were using it to connect the cockpits for safety and uh, and so it was a it was a very important system and growing quite well in fact 15 20 percent a year but I know what you'd like to talk about is sort of an incident that happened shortly thereafter it was within a year or two of, of me joining when SV-33, one of those 66 operating satellites in space of the first generation system, we call it SV for satellite vehicle, not a very exciting name, but that's what engineers do. And poor SV-33, um, you know, obviously had a collision.
1: Iridium has a very special interest in space traffic management, Um, the debris in the junk that's in orbit, and it can all be tracked back to what was lunchtime on February 10th, 2009, and that was the day that iridium 33 or SV33 as you call it got hit by a defunct Russian satellite called the Cosmos 2251. Could you tell us about that moment when you heard the news? You know, where were you? What were you doing? What did you actually, you know, hear? Like was it like a first impression report? What did you actually like get?
0: Yeah, I remember it really well. I was in my office um, that afternoon. I got a call from our chief satellite officer, uh, a guy named Joe Pizzacaroli, who has since retired, but Joe had been involved, heavily involved in our system through that time. And he called me and he said, Hey Matt, um, I got some interesting news. I got some um I got some bad news and some worse news. <laughs> Which do you want first? And I said, Well, what's the bad news first? And he said, Well, we've lost contact with SV 33. I said, You know, we were always quite concerned about our satellites. They were starting to age by that time. They were getting seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, The life of the constellation was very important because to finance and replace it, we needed that. We needed our network to operate very well. Our satellites unlike many people's satellites, we're in constant contact with our operations center because of these intersatellite satellite links that connect all our satellites. So every satellite is constantly beaming its health information back, thousands of data points every second, really to a an operator sitting in Leesburg, Virginia, who could see that data showing up on their screen with its absolute every bit of information about the health of the satellite and the temperature of every component and how things were operating. And really, in a blink of an eye, SV33 wasn't sending any more information. And that was quite unusual. They dealt with all kinds of little satellite anomalies before that, but to actually lose complete information about a satellite because, you know, This one wasn't phoning, honing, or like a lot of satellites do. It was always in contact with 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 us, and suddenly it wasn't in contact. So that was the bad news. I said, "Well, that's not good. What what's worse than that? I mean, what could be worse to lose one of our satellites? Uh, We had spares in orbit, but each one was quite valuable and dear to us. Of course, Uh, they were like children to these guys I knew who operated them and all their unique um, little anomalies that they had. And, And he said, "Well, the worst news is." It may have been struck by something, but we don't know for sure. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? Well, well, um, you need to understand. I mean, um, w- we went to look at the, the the way things used to operate at that time. It's important to understand there was no space traffic management program. In fact, the information about where things were in space was provided by the U.S., government, the U.S. Air Force at the time, they published something something called a space catalog, which sounds like it's a, a name. It's not like a catalog we think of. It was actually a database catalog with the position and movement of all the objects. And each day they published what things in the catalog were forecast to get close to other things in the catalog, you know, as they were whizzing by. And apparently that day, we weren't even the top conjunction probability on the list. I think we were a couple down the list. So it wasn't forecast that for sure it would, these things were going to uh, be close. They were gonna supposedly be close, but the kind of information in the database at the time was that SV33 and and the uh, defunct Cosmos satellite were supposed to be close. They might be getting within X meters of each other, but it was plus or minus a kilometer, which means that basically no information whatsoever. What were we supposed to do with that? When you move a satellite, you move, might move it you know, 30, 40 meters, 100 meters, 200 meters, but to move it a kilometer away, to be absolutely sure you were not going to be, we would never know what to do because everything would be constantly moving. So it was interesting, but the error bars were way too large. And that was a problem with the space catalog at the time. The government didn't publish really highly accurate information for things. It was viewed as a proprietary thing, perhaps for the, the government who were the only ones really getting that data and they felt that that wasn't necessarily anything anybody needed to know at the time and perhaps they did you know at this time so we we had gotten this kind of information for the previous 8 years or whatever we'd operate uh, 10 years we'd operated those satellites but it was never actionable and in fact we nor no one else in space really moved our vehicles well probably the international space station did it would make very precautionary moves but they had very accurate information to deal with. None of us commercial operators did. So I had said to Joe, I said, "Joe, was this? Um, so this is this is bad news, I guess, right?" <laughs> he goes, "Oh, it's really bad news, man. I mean, if it's true, but we can't we can't confirm it. We're really trying to understand. We're talking to people at the Air Force to see if they know anything. Where people are looking for de- uh, debris fragments. This wasn't like you know exactly when something like this happens. Oh, and I said to Joe, I said." By the way, since I haven't really been in the space industry but a couple of years, <laughs> I came out of the terrestrial wireless communications world, and you know, operating in space was a bit new to me. I said, "Is this happen very often? You know, that things run into each other in space?" And he said, "Matt, you know, in the 60 years or whatever of space flight, you know, of of where things in the space, this is the first time anyone's ever really confirmed that two things have run into each other." I mean, remember, space is quite large. I mean, no matter how what we talk about, even low Earth orbit is massively large by volume, even with all this debris. And we'll talk about this, I'm sure. But debris is very dangerous. But it's not like, you know, it's whizzing bias like the movie Gravity is all the time. It's, um, it isn't like that. And things don't run into each other even without moving them around. And obviously, we hadn't in the previous uh, nine, 10 years of operating these satellites really hit anything else, you know, even accidentally. I asked the team. I said, "What do you think about this? Do you think anybody will notice?" <laughs> in retrospect, that was very naive to say. And uh, one of my senior executives said, "Matt, this is going to be on the evening news tonight." And I was kind of like, my first reaction was, "Cool." <laughs> I mean, I want I want publicity. Uh, you know, this isn't the way you want it, though. Let's just say, and it was, in fact, on it that night, including very graphic displays of what it probably looked like with these pieces flying everywhere. And so you can imagine after working so hard to get sort of public attention for you know all the good things our company was doing, it was sort of strange to see ourselves so publicly on there and not even something that we could really control or do anything about. There wasn't anything we could have done to avoid it.
1: But, but, but who do you call? Who did you call? There wasn't like AAA in space. There still isn't AAA in space, though. I know they're working on that. Wait, what do you, what do you, what do you do? Do I mean, there's like, you can't phone a friend exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, there was the, there was the operational team. I I have a fantastic operational team with more experience in low earth orbit than anyone else does that that, uh, manages our network from our center in um, Virginia here and also in Arizona. And they had a relationship with the U.S. Space Force, if you will, NORAD. You know, the people who, uh, the space, the, the wing that really manages the radars that look up into space and, and try to interpolate exactly where everything is. And they, and they have a good idea down to very small, small uh, diameter. And they, they had a bit of a relationship. And so they started to be in contact. For me, I mean, uh, it wasn't anybody for me to necessarily call. I certainly had to be prepared to start answering questions. Like, uh, you know, why didn't you move? You know, I mean, it was just a surprise to people that there wasn't anything we could do. It, we didn't have any information, any actionable information to allow ourselves to move. So, you know, I was able to answer that. I got a lot of press calls. I did get a call from someone in um, my customer. Uh, in the US government, uh, the US government's always been a customer on our network, they have sort of a private network, we don't have a lot of visibility to exactly how they use our, our network, but they use it for things like morale calling, you know, so if a soldier, for example, was hurt, you know, they can call their family, they don't have a network like, uh, you know, that operates absolutely every place on the planet. So we provide sort of a glue, they also track assets and things like that. And And, and there is a new, a new general uh, who, is, who had been assigned to our contract about six months earlier. In fact, he's become a friend since that time. But at the time, I, I wanted to meet this person. I was only on the job a year and a half. This was a very important customer. And I hoped to do more business with them or that they'd use my network more more fully. And I remember him, I kid him to this day. I couldn't. He didn't really want to talk to his suppliers yet. he was too busy to do that. Well, amazingly, that afternoon, I got a call from his office that he wanted to talk to me. And I'd go, oh, now he wants to talk to me. <laughs> I've been trying to get to his office for six months and we have to run into another satellite. And um, and I was like, General, <laughs> um, I did get calls shortly after that. Government immediately realized how dangerous this could be and, and the increase in danger it, it created for space operators and and decided to start making the most accurate information about where things were In other words, that catalog would suddenly be made extremely accurate. It created a a lot more activity between us and the government. The industry started, uh, they invited industry to start participating with them uh, to actually, uh, because it's not just enough to know where stuff is. They need to know where we are. You know, they need to know where our satellites are and what activities we are, because we're constantly moving our satellites. We're pushing them One way or the other to kind of maintain their orbital position uh, might be increasing their altitude or lowering them to deorbit and that sort of thing. And that's really important information for the government to know as well so that they can put that into their models uh, and provide that information to others. So immediately that started happening where they invited industry members to get together with them and to share our information and to create more of a dialogue, immediate dialogue, um, so that all of us could know what we we, we were doing that was really a catalyst for creating the current environment for space traffic management. Uh, so while I I cringe a little bit because almost everything that talks about space debris loves to talk about you know what happened on that fateful day, you know in 2008 with SV33, I'm I'm proud that at least it had you know it died for a reason. <laughs> you know, it created a whole new regimen in space that really now gives us the opportunity to protect space assets much more effectively. So if it wouldn't happen that day, it would have happened someday to someone else down the road. And so it gave its life for a good purpose uh, to um, to improve the, you know, the, the space debris environment in low earth orbit.
1: Well, well, first of all, did your customers actually even lose service? Did they even know that something had happened?
0: You know, they didn't. Um, one of the things that's a great thing about our network is that since each satellite really is only overhead for about eight to 10 minutes. You know, that's about the time it takes to go from one horizon to the next before the next satellite comes into place. You know, losing one satellite in our network is almost unnoticeable for most customers because it only means a very, very short outage twice a day. And so, you know, if you were calling on a satellite phone or from a ship or from an airplane, it probably, you just redial. And by that time, a new satellite had come into place. But, one of the things we pride ourselves is reliability and service, so that was still not acceptable to us, and we really wanted to replace it as quickly as possible. So it still is important. Obviously, these are these are valuable valuable uh, satellites, and you wouldn't want it to happen to too many of
1: them. Well, was the iridium actually? I mean, the iridium thirty three was it actually insured? How much did the iridium thirty three cost to manufacture and launch?
0: Well, if you think about it, the original Iridium system probably cost 5 to $6 billion according to popular memory. You know, this goes back to the days of the mid-90s when Motorola created a private company to do this. And of course, since that company went bankrupt, books have been written about it and everything. But, you know, it was kind of priceless in that regard because they couldn't make any more satellites. They all stopped the ability to make those specific kind of satellites. So until we replaced it with a whole new network, which we've since done you know, that satellite was the only one we were going to have that was like that. Now, we had fortunately some spares in orbit that were also there and we we had a spare we could move up into that plane, but it was still an extremely valuable satellite. I, I mean, if you divide the 95 satellites they ultimately developed and the launches and everything by 5 billion, you'd come up with a number, I suppose it was worth, you know, 50, 60, $70 million at least probably, you know, in raw value. But that wasn't the point, you know, it was the point of losing a critical piece of our network that we couldn't replace and for which our whole satellite system was aging. And we were worried about how long it would last. We were fortunate it lasted long enough for us to completely replace the network. But at the time we were quite nervous about that.
1: But was it a total loss in a sense financially? Again, was the Iridium 33 insured in any way?
0: no it was it was not insured at the time i mean sort of self insured by having in he- by having spare satellites and really when we replaced them with this new network which we launched between 2017 and 2019 called iridium next you know that was all new replacements that we replaced these satellites with those satellites aren't insured either at this point not not individually for loss after they're in operation we really we sort of self insure by launching extra satellites into Earth. And this is what, by the way, all Leo low Earth orbit satellite operators do. We create extra satellites so that as the old satellites get old or they fail or for, God forbid, another one would get hit by something, you would replace it by your own satellites.
1: There's also the idea that if a certain satellite that has a nation's flag on it, that if it smashes into another satellite, that the nation who's flying the flag of the launching nation, that that nation is responsible, is liable. Now, it was a Russian satellite that smashed into yours. Did the Russian government do anything to offset the cost in currency or in kind?
0: No, no. I mean, that's the short answer. Um... What you described as a mechanism is a great one in theory. I don't think it's ever been exercised in practice because not many things have have really run into each other. I'd say that when I asked, Is there anything we can do about this? you know, the answer kind of came back. Well, you know, I mean, you could certainly lay claim if you wanted to and see where that went to. but we were a small company without lots and lots of resources at the time. We were not even public company yet, not certainly not as successful and valuable as we are today. And it seemed like it was a long uphill battle to try to prove something that would be difficult between nation states to try to prove. so and, and you know, arguably, I, I still, to this day, don't hold blame for anyone. I mean, that was a defunct satellite. It should Yes, it should have been deorbited, perhaps. If it could have been deorbited, uh, I have no idea what the reasons why it was still just going around the Earth, slowly decaying. Uh, but that probably at that altitude would have happened for about another hundred years or so. Hey, that's the problem with satellites in low Earth orbit. They take a long, long time, even in low Earth orbit, to eventually make their way down into the atmosphere to burn up in the atmosphere. That's why we actively removed all our satellites when we changed out from a first generation network to a second generation. But I don't know why that one wasn't, but it hadn't been. And uh, we just weren't going to try to argue that somehow there was liability or cause or anything like that.
1: And how did the loss of the satellite affect your workforce for these engineers? These satellites are their children, right? I mean, it's, this is kind of tough, especially
0: when they were, you know, we had a tough time getting started as a company. And so these satellites really needed to last us, you know, they were built to last maybe 10 years to 12 years. And we were in year eight at the time and I needed them to last 15 to 20 years, because that's how long it would take to build a, replacement network. So these weren't sort of just unimportant satellites. These were critical to our our future in some ways. And and the team that, as you said, operates them, really each one of these satellites had a personality. They all had sort of grumpy components whatever, or little software patches or things that were unique to that specific vehicle. So yeah, losing one was a was always a disappointment. And I can tell you when we deorbited them, a little ceremony was held for all the satellites that we eventually deorbited. Each one was given a bit of a a burial, if you will. (laughs) They were given honorable discharges, I guess. You know, there was a little grave gravestone made for every satellite that we even had to deorbit on its own that gave its life, if you will, as a new satellite replaced it. So you can imagine what it's like to lose a satellite unexpectedly, you know.
1: And this loss came at a pivotal moment in Iridium's history. And at the time, your company was Iridium LLC, and you very particularly had been credited with steering the company out of the shadow of the 1999 bankruptcy filing. So how did losing the Iridium 33 affect your company and your business or the deal with GHL acquisition?
0: We had been brought out of bankruptcy by a small group of investors who spent a few tens of millions to buy all the asset of the company. And of course, while we were growing quite rapidly and generating cash flow, and we were doing quite well, but I did know that if we were going to replace the network, I was going to need a lot more money eventually—three billion dollars. You know, while we could generate maybe a third of that, we were going to need to raise debt and equity and other things to get to the point where we could. We could actually replace the whole network so this was coming really a year before we were gonna well it was coming right in the middle of the process to raise money so it was a a surprise to that obviously it led to questions by investors you know who said we've never heard of this happening before is this going to be a problem are you going to have lots of satellites what about the debris from this is it going to create problems for other satellites uh now we answered those questions and obviously answered them successfully because we eventually did go public. We did merge, as you said, with a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, as they're called these days. We were one of the first satellite companies to do that back back in two thousand nine, and as a result of that, we became a public company and raised the money and signed contracts and built new satellites and all that sort of thing. But at the time, it was it was a delicate part of our our history as we were kind of walking a fine line, if you will, as we were you know, moving ourselves from just early operational success to a much larger financial picture that allowed us to replace our network.
1: And it was also at that time, if I'm not mistaken, that you personally decided that the company needed to do something to address space junk and orbital debris. Tell us about that. And if I'm not mistaken, you have more than one line of effort.
0: Well, you know, at the time, I mean, It put us clearly on the camp of, um, please, let's not um, create more space debris. And it personally informed me very much that um, just how important low Earth orbit was. I, I think people knew that and obviously expected it. But at that time, this race to space that we have today, where tens of thousands of satellites are being potentially launched into space, that hadn't even been envisioned yet. Remember when this happened in 2008? SpaceX, for example, which is developing the Starlink network, which is arguably going to be one of the the largest networks uh, up there. They're not a they're a complementary network to us. They don't really do what we do, so we we cheer them on. But with you know maybe 10,000, 15,000 satellites over time, that's crazy numbers compared to the the 66 that we had at the time. So. But that was SpaceX hadn't even had their first successful launch, you know, when this was this happened of their Falcon One vehicle, which was the predecessor to the current workhorse Falcon Nine that they have. So these were this was early days, really, Uh, and no one really knew much about sort of the viability of space. Uh, Now, when there was an ASAT test by China that blew up a lot, that also created a lot of debris in space, and and together with SV Thirty Three, I think that that really was a wake up call for for the industry about you know the preciousness of of low Earth orbit. So I've been on a bit of a public um, uh, high horse, if you will, you know, uh, talking to anybody about the need for many things. I mean, there, there are a lot of things can be done. What, what worries me, a lot of people think that there's a quick technical solution. You know, all we need to do is develop some technology which will eliminate debris. I think that's really important that technologies be developed, but unfortunately, they won't clean space out as fast as it's it's made if we don't stop launching stuff into space that could potentially be debris. So we're really against things like anti-satellite tests. People shouldn't be blowing up anything in space. It takes forever for things to come out. This isn't like you know, uh, this isn't a short-term problem. They people shouldn't be flying satellites, for example, that don't have thrusters on them and the ability to actively maneuver away from. Them. People still do, by the way, because it's only guidelines. Uh, we, we felt that there was a line. Use the International Space Station as an example. It's pretty low Earth orbit, about 250 miles up. Um, anything above that should have thrusters and be able to actively maneuver. Anything below that, okay, maybe you can launch a, a scientific experiment that you hope will decay over a couple of years. But that even is, is difficult given all the things that are flying at lower altitude than that. Um, There should be active traffic management, we should be talking to each other, everyone should be talking and sharing the information about what they're doing with their networks, where they're moving their satellites. Changing what's called ephemeris, you know, the information about satellite orbits and velocities and directions, so that everyone can plug that in their own models and understand how it might affect uh, their systems. Um, There's a whole raft of others, obviously actively deorbit. Well, when our predecessors launched in 97, 1998. There was no rules of the road for how long a low-Earth orbit satellite should last in space. Absolutely none. Now, we, we had a handshake agreement, our predecessors did, for a one-year deorbit, which was pretty extreme, but they thought 66 satellites, my God, that's so many satellites. Let's have a one-year deorbit. You know, after that, sometime in the mid-2000s, I guess, the FCC imposed a 20-year orbit okay that was the rule they said if you're going to launch something up there it should come down within 20 years of of actively entering which frankly we believe is way too long 20 years i mean that's way too much time for a defunct satellite to be like cosmos 2251 was and inadvertently run into something else creating debris and inadvertently running into other things so you know five years maybe maximum in our case when we deorbited our first generation satellites we we challenged ourselves to beat the one-year milestone. It was really important to us. And in fact, my operations team averaged 21 days from the time they started to, to deorbit them to the time they were able to actually get them out of space. So I'm really proud of, you know, we really wanted to lead in this. We wanted to demonstrate it could be done. You can do this, a lot of activities to deorbit a satellite It's not a trivial thing, but you know, you can do it if you choose to eliminate the threat, get, it, get things out of space.
1: So have other companies contacted you to actually gain the knowledge or gain the wisdom on how to actively deorbit quicker, sooner? I mean, they must all see the same dangers that your company has actually experienced.
0: They do. Um, and, and, and in fact, we have had a lot of discussions with other uh, operators. We've even... Co-authored, you know, sort of public editorials and things like that with other operators, a number of other ones. So I'm mean, a good example is one with OneWeb, which is launching into low Earth orbit right now. Uh, they co-authored a paper with us with several others about, you know, the the need for de- deorbiting, and and it's very important that OneWeb does deorbit their things because at the altitude they fly at, they're quite a bit above us in altitude. If one of our satellites stop operating, it may be a hundred years for it to, you know, slowly degrade in orbit until it burns up in the atmosphere. And a OneWeb satellite would be over a thousand years, you know, from from its altitude. So, you know, that's just, that's scary, you know, to anybody. So it's another reason why we actively say, you know, we're worried that startups in general, many of the companies who are getting to space right now, it's exciting all the companies that are coming to access space, but we worry that they're, the incentives that they may have may not be there, to be financially capable and able to deorbit uh, their satellites, or to create satellites that are reliable enough, that are commandable and can controllable long term, which is why you know I've been going beyond that, saying if anybody launches a satellite with problems, they should stop launching anything else. They may have a whole bunch of satellites on the launch pad, and and it might be cheaper for them to launch those and fix them into space, but space is too precious for us to be. Experimenting and testing things out into space.
1: So, what do you think should actually be done? Then, your company has worked to actively deorbit your satellites. You've worked with other companies to actively deorbit their satellites. You've worked with other companies in the sense of, of putting out guidelines or, or an editorial outlining what guidelines should be. You know, where are we now? Are we actually making progress?
0: Well. Yeah, you or know, I would say that the recognition and the importance of Leo is absolutely recognized by everybody, and it didn't just take us to do that. Others have found and accepted that as a means. So I think everyone means very well. Everyone's looking for that one answer. If you just do this, it will all be better. Or I believe, you know never actively wanting regulation in space, but a little bit of regulation rules is important. And there's only been some sort of best practices that have been sort of discussed so far for the most part. I I keep saying this is a little bit like climate uh, change. You know, the discussions about climate change back in the 60s and 70s when it was originally uh, concerned about, everyone was concerned about it. The same sort of things that were discussed in climate change and the challenges there. Well, why should, you know, the U.S. reduce it when all these developing nations are producing, you know, so much more. If they don't do it, what's the point of others and who's going to do it first and all those sort of things? And is it a real big problem? And, and won't there be a technical solution? That all exists in sort of the same way in terms of this big problem of, of space debris and low Earth orbit. And so it's just as challenging to fix this solution. I mean, this is nation state sort of thing you know it's important that we really share information but not just amongst us or european operators but amongst the chinese the russians and people who typically don't talk a lot with each other all have to get on the same page together that this is a resource that we're going to uh uh, manage together so it isn't a single solution it's unfortunately not technology it's it's policy it's best practices its approaches to space it's about how we let things get into space. Um, it's just a really, really complicated problem, and there's a lot of people talking right now. Unfortunately, um, uh, I'm nervous it could get worse before it gets better someday.
1: and I imagine your reaction to last month's uh, Russian ASAT test must have been, well, perhaps a little fierce.
0: Yeah, that would be an understatement. I mean, everyone in the industry is concerned. I mean, and you know, the debris from that satellite, we're now tracking well, well above our orbit, which is, you know, even though it was done at a fairly low altitude, debris spreads in every direction, you know, when that happens. And it will take years for that debris to, to degrade and come out of space. And so it's it's created a, a bigger environment for, for all satellite operators right now. And and no one should be destroying things in space. It's It's too damaging. Um, and so I think everyone is interested in solving the problem. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit like the weather. Everyone complains about it, but nobody does anything about it, you know? <laughs> um, and it's challenging to do something about it. So you just gotta keep working at it as a as a industry, as a, uh, you know, across governments, uh, across operators, share commun- share information with each other, cooperate really, you know, make sure that people aren't launching things that uh, could have problems in space, you know, being very careful, that sort of thing. There's no, there's no silver bullet, unfortunately.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Matt.
0: You bet, Laura. Good Good to talk to you.
1: I hope you enjoyed the conversation. That's this week's episode. And before I go, I want to thank Vaga Muradian, the Defense and Aerospace Reports editor, and Chris Cervello, the producer for all the Deaf Air Report podcasts. You can subscribe to the downlink on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.